0: From the start, may you find the strength to know you are a part of something beautiful. May the grace of God be with you always in your heart. May you know the truth inside you from the start. May you find the strength to know you are a part of something beautiful. May the grace of God be with you always in your heart. May you know the truth inside you from the start. May you find the strength to know you are a part of something beautiful. With you always in your heart May you know the truth inside you From the start may you find the strength To know you are a part of something beautiful And I thought that I saw a light shine I thought I saw a light shine Yes, I thought that I saw a light shine I think I see a light
1: Hey, this is Robert Mitchell, and it is episode 53 of High Tide in the Dreamtime, and it's a big one. Um, I wasn't going to make a a, um, podcast about this, but the past week has been so interesting and so challenging um, that I really felt like it was important to share what was going on. Um, And today's episode is going to be called uh MDMA trauma and god's love and again i'm using that word but again it's there's not a better word to use than that um basically what's been going on in my work is uh about two weeks ago maybe three weeks ago rick doblin who's head of maps he's the um is the Multiplayer Dictionary Association for Psychedelic Studies, and he is an advocate for psychedelic use for mental health. And he's been that way for about I don't know. He's been doing that for like thirty-five or forty years. And the first kind of psychedelic treatment that's going to be legalized is MDMA, and the reason it's going to be legalized is because they found that it has does amazing things for post-traumatic stress disorder. And there's such a high suicide rate in the military that the government has basically had to make the choice either to legalize MDMA or just allow veterans to kill themselves at incredibly elevated rates. I think right now it's in... um, I'm not sure the nomenclature... But it's in level three studies, which means that if it's shown to be successful in in the studies that are done now, which are the third time it's been it's been uh, experimented with uh, in in scientific study, it's going to be legal probably with next year. So uh, what do I want to say about it? So what I want to say about it is a lot of people have gotten in touch with me about it since that uh, podcast, because a lot of people watch Joe Rogan. Um, and so people want to work with it. People want to, people want to see if it can help them, you know, and I myself have not had a lot of experience with it. Um, I think I've used it personally like three times and two of those times I was with, um, a girlfriend in graduate school and we were kind of experimenting with it to see what it did because it was the 90s in San Francisco and we were in a therapeutic environment where a lot of um, the faculty uh, used it with clients, including one of um, our teachers had written a whole book on it under a pseudonym and using it in therapeutic environments. And I, I know what her name is, but I don't know the, the pseudonym she used. So I'm not going to use her name, but she was this really far out cool uh, professor we had. Um, and so we used it recreation it wasn't recreational cause we weren't people like that. Um, and it really did bring things up that were unusual. But what I found was what it mostly brought up between two people when they were both using it was uh, the dynamics of the relationship and that can be good and that can be bad. And I had another friend, it was another time I used it. I had this friend, he was sort of, he was sort of one of the original Burning Man people. And I remember he brought it to me. He came from out of town and his girlfriend was with him. This was the first time I did it actually. And the, his, he said, okay, there's, there's three rules. And I was like, okay, what are the rules? He goes, okay, so me and my girlfriend aren't gonna have sex you and my girlfriend aren't going to have sex and you and me aren't going to have sex. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, okay. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, and it didn't. And, you know, I I could see why people recreationally use it and are amused by it. But, um, and and then there was one other time where I, 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 I took it to find out what it did in the last few years, but I wasn't, Therapeutic. I was kind of walking around New York City with it, going to museums, and it had a huge impact on somebody that I was interacting with. It had a huge impact on my mother. Funnily enough, at the end of the day, she had a very huge um, kind of confessional and and a and a request for forgiveness. And what was interesting about it was that I had taken it, and it had mostly worn off, but she was sort of in the field. Of experience, and it's a long story that I'm not going to repeat because people who know me know the story. But um, I'd had that was all, but it was really incredible, and and a lot of forgiveness happened that I didn't even have to initiate. That obviously there's an intelligence in it um, that becomes present. So I worked with it. Someone wanted to work with it recently, and um, their experience was quite remarkable in my observation in that they remembered things that they had never remembered before that were part of their trauma history that seemed to be the foundation for some of the struggles that they were having currently in their lives. And they had never um ever had any whim about this the, these occurrences before and I thought wow that's amazing. That is incredible. And um, it was sort of like a huge mystery solved. And so I thought, you know what? I should use it therapeutically. I should I should do what I've been willing to do with other psychedelics, which is wear an eye shade and um, play a soundtrack and, and have the whole thing happen inside. And so I did. And I have to say, I have to, pr- I have to say that you know, I've never really been that interested in it as a material. And part of the reason I've not been interested in it is because it's a man-made thing. You know, it's something that a chemist created. Um, I think it was discovered during world war one, uh, by Merck. I think it was just a German, uh, chemistry company. And I think what they were using it for was to keep soldiers fighting in world war one, because it's keeps you from getting tired. And it is a, it's part of the amphetamine family. Um, that's its origination, uh, chemically. It's not an amphetamine, like a classical, but it's like a, a dog leg of it anyway. So I never had been particularly interested in things that were not naturally occurring. And that's part of the reason why psilocybin has been so interesting to me, uh, for many years because it had, you know, it's just something that grows everywhere. So there seems to be some kind of natural order in its existence. But, you know, a few years ago, I was talking to a friend of mine who's no longer alive named James O'Rock, who was this expert on 5-MeO-DMT. And we were discussing using it because 5-MeO-DMT occurs in frog venom of this uh, toad that that exists in uh, northern Mexico and in the southwest. And then people recreate that chemically in labs the 5-meo dmt which is in the end and when he was talking about it he was saying that well you you never know how much um 5-meo dmt is going to be in any amount of dried frog venom like there's just no way to measure that and with the um synthetic it can be weighed out and he and then he said to me he said well how can anything that exists not be natural you know, like how could how could something that was created in a lab using materials that are natural not be natural? And so I sort of loosened up my, my rigidity about that and, you know, I was thinking about it. So I was so compelled after seeing this person work this past week to allow the experience to be uh, therapeutic in the way that helps people using psychedelics, which is not to use them recreationally, not to use them socially. Um, but to use them internally to cut off the normal nervous system and to allow your consciousness to interact with these materials separate from having to get you to walk and talk and see and avoid obstacles and to put yourself in a much more womb-like environment. So I'm not going to speak to the specifics of my experience um, because that would be indulgent. But I will say that things were shown to me in a way that were revelatory, that there weren't things that were, the aspects, aspects of them were unknown, but they were revealed to me in a gentle and kind and thoughtful and symbolic and generous way that I could only describe as loving. That I could only say that there was some sort of intelligence in the experience that said, you need to look at this and you need to understand this and you need to see where you are in this process of healing this. And I got to say, I found it utterly remarkable when I think about the things that I was shown and the ways that I was, showing that, was shown them, I can only surmise that whatever intelligence is generated by MDMA, whatever is conjured up by its interaction with your physical brain, it knows what is unhealed in you. And it wants to reveal that to you in the most comforting, helpful, and caring way. And to me, you know, I I am really one for a dynamic psychedelic experience that is sort of, you know, what people would call mind-blowing or transformative or transcendent. It was all those things without being overwhelming and without being dominating of my experience. And the whole experience happened with a tremendous concern for my well-being. And the things that I found were in me and I could feel where they are or were And I could feel where they were unhealed and it showed me the way to heal them. And I think, you know, if people want to talk to me about what my experience was, I'm happy to talk to people about it, but I don't think it's appropriate on this podcast, but I will say that what it made me think about, I, oh, I will say, okay, I'm going to reveal one part of it. Okay. Because I think it's, it's not too personal. Um, and it's worth sharing. At the end, I was shown this field of love. And in it, I was connected to every person who'd ever loved me, whether that was a grandparent or a parent or a friend in elementary school or my first girlfriend in college or my girlfriend in graduate school or my kids, their mom, or my girlfriends or anybody who'd ever loved me that I'd loved, the love was present. It was as alive right now, as it had been the moment it was happening in its most concrete way. And that that was eternal, that love was eternal and it never goes anywhere. That you can end relationships, that people can die, But the love that you recognize in each other and you share with each other, it lives forever. And I know that sounds pretty out there, but uh, that was my experience. But what I also want to get back to now is that I believe that trauma is the initiation into being human. And I know that uh, Jung believed that too, that your wound is the path back to your eternal self and for all of us the eternal self is the same eternal self we're all part of it every single one of us nobody um, is apart from it except in their inability to experience their connection to it and our traumas are our breadcrumbs back towards it and if anybody's been at a birth um, I've been in a couple, just my kids' births. They're really scary. Um, birth is traumatic. It's you know it's a life or death situation, um, and it usually is life. And it's like you know death is I, death is a birth too. You know, um, I've seen I've, I've seen death, and it's not unlike a birth. It's a birth into another state, and these. Bookend experiences are traumatic and scary, but the birth that we have into this life is very much affected by what we're trying to learn and what we're trying to clarify and what we're trying to transcend so that we can share it with other people, so that we can lovingly share it with other people, so that the original being that we all come from learns how to transform that difficulty through us. That's what it is. We're all like ambassadors for that intelligence. And so the hardest thing for people to do in our ego-based culture, because everybody wants to be so cool and everybody wants to be so successful and everybody wants to be so well-liked, is to acknowledge their trauma. So they go about it doing it other ways that are actually more socially sanctioned, like being addicted to things drugs, alcohol, workaholism, by getting sick with illnesses that oftentimes are psychosomatic in nature, by having conflict with other people, by being cut off from the environment, by being in denial of our original nature, which causes so much conflict all religious conflict is that kind of conflict because it's a refusal to acknowledge that our origination is the same no matter how we describe it or what the history of it is or who its leaders were. The origination is the same. And that's true for everybody. The origination is the same, the mission is the same. And when we forget that and we get affected by all the affectations of culture, which are so superficial and we chase that and find out that it's nothing even at the highest level of achievement that's when we can turn back and say what was my or what were my orders what were my original orders what was my um trying to think of what the word is prime directive. I think they call that at that in star Trek, the prime directive, each one of us has a prime directive that is about healing in us. What is currently unhealed. And the only way to do that is to be willing to bear the suffering that was too overwhelming at the time that it occurred. That's what I saw with the person that I was working with this week. Um, And to bear that suffering at the time it occurs, you can't bear it because there's a point to the trauma. It's to imprint on you. It's to make you aware that everybody suffers and to have compassion for other people and not assume that you're better or they're better than you because everybody has this imprint on them. And, When you re-experience these things, one of the things that MDMA allows people to do is to re-experience these things not in present time. In present time, it's too hard. The things I was shown in my experience were too hard at the time for me to make much sense of other than to survive. But now... It's 35, 36 years later, it's 37 years later, I was able to look at things that I couldn't look straight at when they were happening because looking straight at them was terrifying. And that's why MDMA helps people in the military who've seen war atrocities let go of their trauma and let go of their guilt. Because these traumas that are too big for the ego, the ego is so limited. It's really just trying to look cool and get through its day and not be late places to make sense of these incredible, um, incredibly challenging experiences. But what this allows is it allows these experiences to be seen in the totality of who you are and what their meaning was why you experienced that because it was supposed to inspire something in you. And sometimes all it's been able to inspire is an unwillingness to let the full personality develop because it hasn't been able to make sense of that experience. And what this allows, is it to be made sense of and why? I don't know. Um, but i know that it's a gift and i know it has to be used carefully you know i would say that part of the reason that i um never really used it much after the first couple times i used it recreationally was it always made me feel bad the next day it made me feel like depleted it made me, i think it you know what it does is it flushes your brain with serotonin so you use the next days and the next days and the next couple days can be hard so it's not something that you can do recreationally often and there's a certain amount of you know it's sort of like redlining your engine it just kind of shakes things up a little bit um so it's not an everyday thing you know it's not a it's it's been recreationalized in the culture but that's not what it's for but what i want to say Is it's an amazing tool, equal in power to any of the other psychedelics. Even though I would say, in a lot of ways, it's not psychedelic, it's different. But it is equal in power to any of them, and its capacity to heal may be the greatest of all. It's quite possible. You know, I've worked with people with psilocybin who've worked with psilocybin and psilocybin didn't solve what they were trying to solve. A lot of times it will. But a lot of times they're not looking for the insight or, you know, rarely what I'd say is the insight they're looking for is not provided in the language that psilocybin uses. But MDMA is another language entirely. It's another avenue of healing. So, um, this hasn't been a super long one, but I thought it was an important one. And if anybody has any questions, they can feel free to be in touch with me. And, you know, what I want to say about this is it's on its way, you know, it's on its way to help people. It's probably going to be legal in 2022, if not sooner. And a lot of people are going to get a lot of help from this. And it's pretty exciting, and it's pretty profound um, and you know anyone who's out there who's struggling, hang in there because you're going to get some help and um it's inspiring it's an inspiring time in our culture it's an inspiring time in our world um it's an inspiring time for humanity, and each one of us can be part of the transformation, I am sure. All right, so this is Robert Mitchell, high tide in the dream time. Feel free to leave a review at Apple Podcasts. Check out my website at www.goingquantum.org. Um, and I will speak to you the next time I have something to say.
0: Bye bye. God be with you always in your heart May I know the truth inside you From the start may you find the strength To know you are a part Of something beautiful and I Thought That I saw A light Shine I thought I saw A light shine Yes I thought That I Saw A light shine I thought a light shine Yes, I Yes, I thought So alive